Welcome to Strictly Anime, a podcast for anime reviews and discussions by casuals for casuals. My name is Courtney. And I am Carl. This is episode 28, and we're reviewing Code Geass, Lelouch of the Rebellion, season one, part two. As always, there'll be spoilers throughout this episode, so you've been warned. And this is an extra special episode because we have our very first guest on Strictly Anime. We're joined by our good friend, Aaron, who is one of the creators of the YouTube channel Under the Bun. Welcome, Aaron. Hello. Thanks for having me on. (laughs) We're so excited for this. Um, This has been a long time coming and we're very glad that you're our very first guest. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your YouTube channel. Uh, Yeah, so I am one of the guys who makes videos for Under the Bun. We are a video game-centric YouTube channel. Uh, I mainly do, like, reviews and discussions and, uh, I guess, tutorial-type videos. Um, I play a lot of classic games and retro-style games and indies. Um, Lately, I've been making a lot of videos about Doom Eternal and um, I'm kind of just getting out of a uh, break that I took once uh, the year wrapped up just to kind of play through some other things for fun instead of having to worry about making games for them. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, uh, and I uh, I watched your, your Valentine's Day episode. I did as well. <laughs> oh, thank I have you. to say, that was a, those were some solid lists. I mean, I was all for, of course, the, the Link and Zelda ship. That's probably my, my number one in video games. So I was glad to see that on there. That's that's a classic, classic choice right there. I also love how you included that Mega Man is it Zero and Iris dub. Oh yeah, oh, that yeah. was so good. <laughs> it's like man, that was top notch quality voice acting. <laughs> the peak of dub voice acting. <laughs> it's a classic, like bad dub. <laughs> but I also want to call out. I love that you included um, Wander and Mono in your list from Shadow oh, yeah. of the Colossus because I think they are a very, yeah, they're a very underrated couple. And if you want to talk about like love as at its core, like that man slaughtered like the Beast Titans deformed children for this girl. <laughs> Sorry for the spoilers for people who haven't played Shadow of the Colossus, but he went literally to the ends of the earth for this girl, even at the cost of his own sanity. Um, so I'm very glad that you included them uh, on your top five. That's such a good game. It is. Such I played a, the good, solid classic. Yeah, I played the remaster. I think one or two years ago, and it still held up really well. Well, speaking of video games, I'm curious to know kind of what we're all playing right now, because um, I've got just a couple of games that I'm. I'm flip-flopping between. So, Aaron, let's start with you. Is there anything that you're playing right now or you plan to play really soon? Um, so I am in the middle of Shadow Warrior 2 right now, kind of preparing for the release of Shadow Warrior 3 this year. Not sure if you've ever played those. It's like a first-person shooter about um, just super, like, Asian cliches, <laughs> like kung fu, sword fighting, Yakuza, stuff like that. Um but it's super fun. And I'm also playing through the entire God of War series right nice. now. Working nice. towards a review of the newest God of War game. That's that's timely because they've been teasing God of War 2 for a little bit now, right? They have, yeah. That's supposed to come out either late this year or early next year, I think. That's going to be amazing. Oh, my God. See, I wanted to do that too. But the most recent God of War game I played was Chains of Olympus on 
well, it's on my PS Vita, but I kind of wanted to go back and play through the PS2 classics. How many God of War games are there in total now? There are, I think, nine. Oh, my God. There was... Yeah, that would be an undertaking to play all of those. <laughs> there's the two PS2 ones. There's the two... No, there's seven, I think. Because, yeah, there's oh God. God of War 1, 2, and 3. Then there's the three prequels, which were Chains of Olympus, uh, Ghost of Sparta, and Ascendance. And then there's the 2018 one. Damn. That's that's a time commitment to play all of those again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm about halfway through them. I actually... So I have the PS3 like remasters of the PSP games. Oh, nice. And I'm on Ghost of Sparta, which is the second PSP game right now. And uh, my disc is less like broken. I keep beating. <laughs> I beat the same boss like five times, and it keeps freezing on the cutscene right after the boss. Oh my god! So I can't get past it. So I'm actually waiting on a new copy of it right now, so that I can finish the game. <laughs> Dude, that's that's gotta be frustrating. Oh my god! Well, props to you for keeping at it and trying over and over again to defeat this boss and not having the game crash on you. <laughs> Certainly, uh, frustration for sure. <laughs> Well, what about you, Carl? You you go next. What are you playing right now? Oh gosh, well, right now I'm pretty busy with my full time job, so I really haven't had a chance to to play video games. Although I did have a break over Christmas, um, but I know it's like those damn full time jobs getting in yeah. the way of our <laughs> our video games and anime. <laughs> so now I have like a, a backlog that goes all the way back to like 2007, um, but mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm. I think the last game I actually played was Grand Theft Auto 4's DLC um, episode from Liberty City, and that came out on the PS3. So I'm kind of going back two generations, but I think that game is it's just mindless fun, um, and I think GTA is one of those great stress relievers because you know you get to rampage throughout a city doing whatever you want. I usually just like driving and following the speed limits and what? just cruising, no, like just cruising, <laughs> cruising through the city at um, the speed limit. <laughs> yeah, just taking in the sights. You're such it, a proper citizen, even in <laughs> video games. Because it, it, it's kind of relaxing. But um, I think that was the last game I played, and that was again back during the holidays. Um, and I think I picked up uh, Animal Crossing: New Horizons every now and then just to get like those random items i know like the next update is the mario 35th anniversary or whatever yeah i think this month right yeah so i'll probably pick it up again get those special items and then put it down after five minutes <laughs> basically <laughs> gotta get those mushrooms right <laughs> what about you courtney um so i have been giving my nintendo switch a little bit more love lately um I've been flip-flopping between Paper Mario, The Origami King, and then Hyrule Warriors Age of Calamity, um, about halfway through each of those games. And then on my PS5, I Platinum Bug Snacks. Um, wow. And then, I know. Oh, how was that? <laughs> it was good. Um, the story was, like, good. I wasn't super enthralled by it, but the, the gameplay itself, while it's super simple it was really enjoyable like especially coming out of i also platinum the last the last of us um yeah the last of us too <laughs> <laughs> i platinum the last of us too and so i needed like a detox before i played like my next long game and i was like i'll do bug snacks it's free i've heard good things about it and i would say it's it's worth the the time it probably took me 
um, about a week to get through the game all the way through. And then I'm trying to finish Dishonored 2, which I'm halfway through and I've been like slowly chipping away at it for a while, but I want to finish that before I officially retire my PS4 and only use my PS5. So that's, that's I think, my next big game, hopefully. Why would you want to retire your PS4? Because I've got my PS5 now, okay? I can play most of those PS4 it's, games it's on the PS5. It still works. <laughs> I'm all about the newest technology. Like, once I get my hands on the next-gen console, I'm like, store the previous-gen console in storage. I'm going to keep it forever, but it just goes in storage. Okay. I was going to say, like, these consoles don't just die once the <laughs> next generation comes out. Well, <laughs> if it's got backplay like PS5 does, then that's all I need. On the topic of like retro games, I'm on this Facebook group, found a Facebook group, and I've been getting great deals on old games for like $4. I've been getting like PS2 and Nintendo 64 games. It's been great. Oh my God. That's, that's like so tempting. Even though $4 doesn't sound like a lot when you add it all up with all the games you get, (laughs) that's a good chunk of change. Yeah. I know I'm looking at this stack on my table right now of like seven games that I just bought and each of them only cost me like five to seven dollars but <laughs> <laughs> it'll just extend your backlog <laughs> yeah yeah that reminds me of i think um when gamestop was closing most of its stores we had gone to one um and i picked up a copy of god of war 3 for the ps3 for like 50 cents <laughs> so <Nice>. it's like <laughs> getting those yeah getting those niche games at very great deals it, it's a nice feeling and hey you know that you know that whatever 53 cents or whatever it was contributed to the GameStop stocks you know the like stonks. the stocks you you help them <laughs> you help them achieve what they have now which is mind-blowing <laughs> all right let's get into the topic at hand which is anime and more specifically code geass actually since we are a strictly anime podcast i kind of wanted to get Aaron's thoughts or his kind of his backstory into how he first got into anime so Aaron please enlighten us on your journey through anime (laughs) cool like what got you hooked I guess first (laughs) um so of course like most people I grew up watching like Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh and like the early like I guess kid friendly anime on like Fox Kids and the WB and stuff like that and then um when Toonami was was big I got into like Dragon Ball Z and I'm actually a huge Mecha fan. Perfect. Um, so I was always looking forward to when Toonami did the Giant Robot Week, and they did like Zoids and Oh shit! And I Gundam. forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> and I got big into um, Robotech. Was like the first like massive anime that I got big into, and that was from uh, I first heard of the series through a PS2 game called Robotech Battle Cry, and then it's since I went out and bought all the DVDs, um, and that's actually a Americanized like amalgamation of three separate animes. It's like super weird. Um, but the first season of Robotech is Super Dimension Fortress Macross, which is my favorite all-time anime. Um, and then the other two are two other anime series that they split together and like Americanized to make one syndicated show. Um, and then I kind of like fell out of it for a little while of course like I read Shonen Jumps here and there um I watched Toonami here and there but I wouldn't like say I was hardcore into it until um Rob actually came over one day and was like hey you gotta check out this show Code Geass oh Um, yeah in the same way that like Attack on Titan is 
was how Carl says it was kind of like the anime that got him back into anime. Uh, that's what Code Geass was to me. So it's definitely a very special anime to me, and it's one of my all-time favorites. So I'm really excited to talk about it here. <laughs> that's awesome. And that's one of the reasons we really wanted to have you on for this episode is because of your love of Code Geass. And I'm curious to know, without any spoilers for season two, because Carl's the only one here who hasn't wah, wah. who hasn't seen R2 yet, um, but tell us like why in general you love Code Geass. Um, so first, like I, like I said, I'm a big mecha fan. Um, so the, the mechs are a big, were a big like thing that got me into it at first. Um, especially, uh, you know, with season two, a lot of the mecha designs are very cool. Um, I love the Gurren. I love the Lancelot. So that was kind of like the first thing that caught my eye. And then the story is just so complex and deep and the characters are all just so interesting um, it reminds me a lot of, like, Death Note in that way, too. Um, I see a lot of similarities between, like, Light and Lelouch. Um, and so it was just the mixture of the mecha action and the constant evolving um, mysteries and intrigue just really just really caught me. Nice. And I have to agree with that. I think the the plot is extremely complex, but not in a way that it turns you off because some there are some anime out there and shows in general where there's just so much shit going on you're like what the fuck is happening i can't keep up with this it's like too much um but i will say that watching code geass a second time my armpits were still sweating like i was still so nervous even though i knew what was going to happen i'm like holy shit i'm sweating right now just watching the show because the intensity is like up here all the time oh same this is uh I, I'm rewatching it, obviously, or just finished rewatching it for this, and it was actually my fourth time rewatching it. Wow! And same way, like even there were certain things that I forgot just because of like how much goes on in this show. But same, like I knew it was going to happen, but still, it's just so intense, and you get so into it, and like the emotional impact of certain scenes still hits you, even though I've seen it a couple of times now. Yeah, for sure. Although Carl, I feel like you you are slightly overwhelmed by the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I might be the more unpopular opinion of the three of us here <laughs> uh, might be playing a little bit of devil's advocate. But yeah, me being a filthy casual who has seen the show for the, just for the first time, um, I feel like it's, to me, I compare it to Game of Thrones on like 22-minute steroids. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so like the first half, obviously there was a lot going on. And especially with the second half, um, it, it's it continues that like bombardment of information and all these action sequences with like a very rapid fire pace, but not to say like, I don't enjoy it because I, I like how it explores kind of all the consequences of Lelouch or zero's actions. And again, how fucking complicated it is to lead a rebellion, a rebellion when literally all of your friends and family's lives are at stake at the same time. Um, and you know, I, I forget that this is a, I don't know if you would consider this a mecha anime, um, but at times like, you forget just because like the, the drama and the plot are just so engrossing and then it sprinkles in those those nice little mecha action sequences. Yeah, I think it's it's technically listed as a mecha, but you're right. Like it's just, it's such a blend of so many different elements, which I think for me personally, it stands out from a lot of other mecha that I've seen just because it, it has so much more to offer um plus i'm not like i love mecca but it's it's not one of my like top genres um so for me it's nice to have those other key elements um to kind of keep me engaged 
in in the show and again like i sweat every time i watch it even though i know exactly what's gonna happen <laughs> so with that said um let's dive into the synopsis and then we'll go through each episode as we usually do and chime in with with our thoughts and let me tell you i've got a long list of notes for this half of the season <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's get down and dirty. So with an overall synopsis first, Code Geass, Lelouch of the Rebellion, is a 2006 anime series produced by Sunrise, Mainichi Broadcasting System, and Project Geass, which follows Lelouch v. Britannia as he leads a rebellion group called the Black Knights to oppose the colonial superpower of Britannia. And we're going to start with episode 13, Shirley at Gunpoint. We open up part two in a setting fit for a My Chemical Romance music video. Shirley's father's funeral, where LaDouche uses his hair to hide the shame of his complicity. He later has shower thoughts about how far Zero's movement has gone in both progress and consequence, but with Shih Tzu's encouragement, he vows to continue to Susume. After receiving a tip from his new PR director, Diet Hard, he dons his Zero the Hero identity to disrupt a Britannia operation to eliminate the JLF on a Sakuradite freighter. By eliminating the freighter himself, and declaring it a seaside suicide. Suzaku Naruto's Lancelot forces Zero's nightmare to crash, and who should be hanging out nearby but Shirley, tipped off by Villetta the ponytail bitch that LaDouche may be involved with the Black Knights. She approaches the cockpit and finds LaDouche behind Zero's mask before pulling the trigger. Surely she can't be serious. Sorry, I started laughing in the middle of the synopsis because I've never heard anyone say Deed Hard's name is Diet Hard, but it's literally <laughs> spelled that way. I didn't even think about yeah, that. Yeah, Diet Hard with a vengeance. Because <laughs> they say Dito Hard in the show. Oh my God, my eyes are like watering right now. I was like, it took me a second too when you said that. I was like, what did he just say? But yep, it is spelled Diet Hard. You know, it's, it's, it's my way of remembering these characters' names. <laughs> like I have to come up with these stupid conventions. <laughs> that was great. Okay, sorry. So with this first episode, the first thing I want to call out is um, the opening and ending. So... Aaron, I don't know what your thoughts are on this opening and ending, but I must have written it out of my memory because I think it's just so bad, especially because, <laughs> sorry, because Colors, the, the the previous opening was absolutely phenomenal. It's, it's a vibe. It's a classic in my mind. And then they come out with this song and like the song itself is okay to me, but then they recycle a ton of imagery from the first OP. And to me, I was like, this is this is bad. I don't know how I felt about it when I first watched the show, but watching it now, I'm like, this is kind of bad. Yeah, it's definitely not my favorite in the series. Obviously, the first OP, and I actually really like the first OP of the second season also. Um, but yeah, the, uh, comparatively especially, it's, it's a step down. Yeah, and I just, I think what they intended to do maybe with the recycling of imagery is to prevent us from being spoiled with anything but i'm like there are so many other ways you could have done that like you could still use the same characters as we know them in the beginning of the second half of the season um but just with new new imagery new new scenes i don't know it just like bothered me a lot when i was watching it again yeah for those of you who are curious the title i might butcher this but it's kaido kufuno or literally translated as indecipherable um, by the band Jin. Uh, and same here, I think, what was the first one called? Colors by Flo. Hell I keep yeah. wanting to call it Jibun Wo. <laughs> <laughs> but like that one, yeah. The first OP was 
more of a vibe like you both were saying this one kind of takes it down a notch um i mean it, it feels like i don't know if you would categorize it as these music genres but like more grunge or ska which feels like it fits within that early 2000s um music vibe but uh, yeah looking at it now in present day it's again it, it doesn't slap as much i probably won't include it on my anime playlist um and the fact that as you mentioned since it kind of reuses most of the same visuals from the first op um it felt a little bit lazy but overall yeah it's it's not too catchy for me yeah and the ending i thought um was more bearable in terms of the song than the first ending because like the first ending felt code geass-y like it had that kind of regal feel to it um because this is all about you know britannia and all of that but it just wasn't pleasant for me to listen to this one i thought was more pleasant to listen to but less code geass-y um so i don't know which i prefer like the one that fits the theme of the show more but i don't like listening to or the one i like listening to that just doesn't fit the show And this one, the title for the song is Mosaic Kakera or Mosaic Fragments by Sunset Swish. Um, Yeah, me personally, it's a lot more bearable and easier on my ears uh, than the first (laughs) ending. Um, Yeah, that's all I pretty much had to say about it. about you, Aaron? Um, Yeah, I mean, I don't really dislike either ending theme, but I think that especially from like a visual standpoint, it's definitely less like Code Geassi where the first one kind of had that, um, I think Courtney described it like as a painting or something on the last episode, um, which kind of just had that very like regal Britannian vibe to it. Um, Whereas this one is a little bit more of just like a traditional anime closer, I feel. Yeah, and I really appreciated that um, the last ending kind of gave us a glimpse into the backstories for each of the characters um, without I guess spoiling maybe too much um, but it was kind of a cool way to incorporate more backstory subtly um, through that ending but in terms of the actual episode um, I mean this was this was like a an episode that kind of threw you in right away I mean we see Lelouch dealing with again the consequences of his actions and people starting to doubt the Black Knights um, but it's not until like C2 reminds him and kind of pushes him that he flips the switch and goes back to, you know, moving forward with his plan. Um, But with this episode in particular, I think the one thing I really wanted to call out is just how much I forgot, like, how annoying the student council kids are. Because I'm like, Shirley, what the fuck are you doing? Like, get out of the way and go home. Why are you even there? Like, I know why you're there, but, like, why are you there, really? (laughs) Yeah, that inclusion of the the student council, I feel like it's one of those things that that do separate Code Geass from... Um, especially other like military anime, I guess, is that like it's not uncommon for main characters to be like high school students, but to actually show that like high school life and include that high school drama in a way that feels natural, but that also is like uh, very different from the um, the war and the complexity going on around it. Um, is just a super interesting thing for Code Geass to include. Yeah, I completely agree. That's a really good point that like sometimes you see anime go and, and kind of take its plot and run with it, even though to your point, like they are just high school students, but they never feel like high school students. But here it's like it shows the very um, the very fine line drawn in the sand for Lelouch balancing his normal high school life and his family life with Nunnally against everything else that he's doing which is totally wild and not what you'd expect from a high school student yeah sometimes i I forget that 
you know, the leader of this rebellion is just a high school student. Um, and so I, don't know, I can kind of understand like why he's so conflicted with what he's, he's doing with this rebellion. Um, and one thing I wanted to kind of highlight overall with this second part is I think a running theme is like contradiction or kind of like corruption. Um, you kind of see that with skipping ahead to a little later in the episode when Zero explodes the ship, uh, the JLF ship, as the Britannia nightmares are boarding. He, I, if I remember correctly, he claims that it was a suicide, but it was actually something of his doing, right? Yeah, I think that's right. So that was a fucking lie. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it was interesting because it, it seems like, you know, as noble as this rebellious cause is supposed to be, it seems like Lelouch, um, or as Zero, is trying to illegitimately strengthen this cause. So that was an interesting thing that I wanted to point out. Moving on to episode 14, Gias versus Gias. Shih Tzu calls the Black Knights to retreat from the dock assault, and Ogi discovers a wounded ponytail bitch suffering from memory loss. The douche regains consciousness and becomes sus about Shirley discovering his secret identity, so he and Shih Tzu track her down to Narita. They run into a shady character, wink wink, named Mao, who uses utilizes a mind-reading form of cheat code Gias to manipulate Shirley into shooting LaDouche. She chickens out, allowing Shih Tzu to send Mao away. And we discover that he is a CC simp through and through. In a sad twist of fate, LaDouche decides to end Shirley's misery by using cheat code Gias to erase her memories of him. And surely, he was serious. This was a super intense episode. We get introduced to Mao, who I kind of have like a, I don't know if it's like a love-hate relationship with. I, it's more like I sympathize but don't sympathize with him. Um, and then Lucia's identity starts to spread, and then he wipes Shirley's memory. There's just like so much that happened in this. Um, and I, the only thing I really noted about this episode is at the end, after everything happened and he, he had to wipe Shirley's memory, Lelouch tells C2 that he doesn't know if he loves or hates Shirley. And I took that as, you know, he he cares a lot about her, but she's also very much complicated his plans. And really, it's just been a huge fucking nuisance to him. Um, and so I, I just, I found that interesting. Like he, he's in this weird spot where he doesn't know kind of how he feels about his overall plan with the black Knights. And that's kind of trickling into his, his personal situation as well. And even at the end of the episode, he tells Shirley that, um, cause I think she asked him like, Oh, were you visiting someone or looking for someone in particular? And do you love this person? And at the end he still says like, he doesn't know, um, you can just tell overall he's very, very lost at this point because of everything that's happened up until this moment, including the consequences of his actions when Shirley's dad was killed. So it was a really cool way to kind of see a different side of Lelouch because he's always on top. Like, sure, there's moments where he, you know, his plans go awry or someone bests him, but he's always kind of on top of things. And this is the first time we're really seeing him more vulnerable and even questioning himself. Yeah, I, the way I see it, it's kind of like... You know, you want to make sure that your personal life and your work life aren't mixing together. And that's becoming very complicated for Lelouch. As, like you said, Shirley's getting involved in kind of mucking up his plans. And he has to do this very, you have to make this very dire choice of wiping her memories. And that kind of represents like what he's losing in this quest for rebellion and revenge while 
trying to do his best to keep his personal life out of it. Um, and to kind of comment on another metaphor, you had mentioned like this is where Lelouch kind of realizes that he's not always in control of the situation. Um, we see that with Mao because I believe they play chess on the tram and that's where we learn about Mao's unique Gias ability um, to read people's minds and kind of think one step ahead of them. Because I think the first part of this season establishes that, you know, Lelouch is this like chess master and we see a lot of analogies to chess being used when he's using battle strategies on the battlefield. But here when they're playing chess on the tram, Mao can kind of anticipate his moves and Lelouch doesn't really know how to react to that. So it's almost like it's again, another contradiction of Lelouch being in control by using the game of chess um, as the set piece. Yeah, so that whole um, that whole scene with um, Lelouch and Shirley and him having to ultimately um, relinquish like a big part of you know his life um, to me it kind of signified almost like a um, like Lelouch leaving part of his humanity behind and almost uh, it was almost like a revelation for him that he has to fully become zero. Um, and it's almost like, uh, like I know you love the, the Batman references, but it's who is wearing the mask? <laughs> is it is Lelouch wearing the mask or is Zero wearing the mask pre- pretending to be Lelouch? And um, I feel like doing that to Shirley and kind of releasing her from his life was in his way uh, ultimately deciding that he is Zero and Lelouch is the mask and Lelouch is not who he actually is anymore. That's a really good way to put it. Like that, I didn't even think about it that way. Um, it also makes me question overall, like why does he continue through the rest of the season to have this facade of of being a Lelouch Lamperouge? Like at, at a certain point, you think he'd just say, look, I'm so far in this and people are basically finding out who I am anyway. I just need to kind of like make myself known. Although I guess on, on the other side of things, he's still trying to hide his identity as part of the royal family. So if he if there's too much chatter around him as Lelouch, then that could that could cause him issues, um, if he's discovered and, and could put Nunnally in danger. But yeah, I mean to your point, like if he's if he's fully accepted that he is zero and that Lelouch is just kind of a, a distant memory, um, I just find it interesting that he continues to to play that game and, and to be that high school student that he clearly is not. Yeah, that was a really good point. I think kind of capitalizing on that, we can, will continue to see like this conflict of whether or not he is fully embracing his identity as zero and losing his, his personal identity as Lelouch. Um, and again, this will kind of harken back to my, my theme of contradiction um, as we go into the later episodes of this part. In episode 15, Cheering Mao, Shih Tzu tells an enraged Ladouche of her past history with Mao and how his unique cheat code Gias drove him insane by having to constantly listen to people's inner Twitter feeds. She takes matters into her own hands by attempting to kill Mao in the Clovis Land theme park, but he turns the tables and holds her hostage. Ladouche uses some smart anime scheming with a video recording to fool Mao and rescue Shih Tzu, and he orders a Gias-possessed police squad to shoot Mao down. Oh, and we get a lot of plot in this episode. Specifically, Valletta plot. 
Oh, God, I forgot about that. That was this episode, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, it was. Oops. <laughs> and it kind of just dangled in front of you, and you were just, like, caught off guard. <laughs> and so was Ogie in that moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, I want to ask this question right off the bat for both of you guys, and Aaron, Aaron we'll start with you. Um, this is the episode where C2 reveals um, kind of what she's, her, her relationship with Mao um, and, and says pretty much that she gave Mao his gyas when he was six and was a companion to him because he was an orphan, but ultimately abandoned him because he wasn't able to fulfill his contract. Um, how do you feel about that? Like it, at this point in the show, like what was your perception on C2 now that, you know, after learning about that? So C2 has always been one of those things that I feel is like most confusing about the show. Um, her origin and what her motives are, um, kind of like what, what, what did she hope to gain from a six year old in the first place? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so in a lot of ways, and especially with how like Lelouch reacts to hearing about that, how he was even, you know, calling her selfish and a witch or whatever. Um, it's kind of how I initially felt too, or it was kind of like, okay, why is she making deals with people all the time? And what, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to kind of, uh, see what her end game is, what her end goal is when she is just making these weird contracts with people, um, giving them powers that they don't know how to control or aren't ready to control, um, and kind of promising the world to these people and then ultimately having to kill them, you know, not, or, you know, their Mao fell apart. He wasn't able to, um, he wasn't. He didn't get the world like C two promised. Uh, and so, when first watching it, I was definitely like, "This, like, what is wrong with this this chick?" Kind of is my reaction. <laughs> this bitch is crazy. <laughs> but no, like that's a that's really important to note that she's not telling anybody, at least at this point that we know of, um, what what they're getting into by agreeing to take on the Gias power. I mean, granted, she didn't really give Lelouch a chance to think about it because he was about to die. Which, fine, I get that. Um, but. I, I think Lelouch also kind of realized like there's more to this that you haven't told me. He he sometimes feels or reacts tricked or betrayed by C2. But what's interesting is that he always ends up kind of circling back to her or relying on her or kind of having that alliance with her. And at the end of this episode, I noted here that even after learning all these things about C2 and kind of being put off about it at first, it seems like Lelouch then just becomes more attached to C2 at this point and makes that promise to her that he won't succumb to his Gias power and that he'll fulfill his goals and hers. Um, so it's it's like either he is just turning a blind eye to the situation with Mao and that history there, or he sees the value in her and feels he's more powerful than Mao and therefore won't fall into that same trap. And what is, like, do they really explain how Cece ended up meeting Mao? I don't think that's one of those things that is ever, like, super explored yeah i think um i mean we know that she has lived a long time but she just kind of plops it down saying like when i met mal versus like why she was there because he's chinese i think right and um she just was there with him at this orphanage and she somehow found him and then fucked up his life (laughs) yeah still like aaron said i'm still struggling to understand what her place is in all of this um because, yeah, it's weird that she would just choose a random orphan to give Gias to, but it, it makes a little bit more sense um, with giving it to Lelouch because he was in, like, a 
do or die situation at the beginning of the uh, at the beginning of this series um but yeah I, i'm trying i'm struggling to really understand like what her place is in this and as as aaron mentioned like what her end game is in all of this moving on to episode 16 nunnally held hostage Shitsu fucks off for a bit to get support from the Chinese Federation, and we learn that Millie Vanilli is being courted by Lloyd, aka this universe's version of Liron. LaDouche learns the consequences of ignoring Zombieland rule number two, double tap, when he discovers that Mao is still alive and well, and now holding Nunley hostage in the school sewers. With Suzaku Naru's help, however, he devises a precise anime scheme that literally goes down to the wire, and they are able to save Nunnally and apprehend Mao. Mao pulls a wild card and reveals that Suzaku Nareru killed his own father, which gets him spiraling. Ladouche takes control of the situation by silencing Mao with his cheat code Gias, and Shitsu returns from her trip in time to give her former lover and friend a nice coup de gras. Okay, so lend me your ears for a moment. Let me just have kind of a, a minute or two here to oh boy. <laughs> run through my thoughts on this episode because I knew this episode was coming. I remember it and I remember I disliked it probably the most of all the this, the episodes in this first season. So it was just the most far-fetched thing, especially for Code Geass where you really wouldn't expect them to to have such like a nonsensical episode. Um, I, I wrote a shit ton of notes kind of recapping what happened here and all like the just the silliness that was happening this the, the things that I'm in disbelief about so Mao had five hours to set up an entire trap not accounting for any possibility that Lelouch could find him sooner he kidnaps Nunnally Mao does and somehow gets her in her heavy ass wheelchair to the water systems under the school where he somehow had access to the maintenance elevator and knew that these water systems even existed and then Lelouch says that the student council has access to the maintenance systems. Like, why? Why would the student councils have a or student council members have access to any of that stuff? Shouldn't just the janitor have that access? And then Mao somehow changes the code super quickly on the maintenance elevator when Lelouch is trying to use a key card to access it. So, like, why would he change a code if he needed a key card to get into the elevator? So then Mao somehow attaches a fully functioning turret to a small ass camera on the ceiling, like as if that turret's not going to rip that thing out of the ceiling with its weight. And as Suzaku leaves the elevator, he's dodging the fucking turret, running up the wall, literally, and knocking it down with a roundabout kick, a roundhouse kick. And I'm like, how, how is it even possible? He would have shattered his shin trying to do that. Um, so then when we get down to the actual water system area... Mao presumably lifted this entire bomb thing, this crate-sized bomb that swings by a pendulum like from or swings like a pendulum from a single cord all by himself and then attached that bomb to a weight-sensitive trigger that is all the way up to the ground floor of the chapel and then Mao somehow gets access. Sorry, I'm still going, guys. <laughs> Mao somehow gets access to the camera that happens to be facing Nunnally. And then Suzaku somehow knows that that particular bomb has a blast radius of, conveniently enough, 500 meters, which is the same range that Mao has for his Gias. Um, and Mao attaches that weight-sensitive trigger to the scale and prepares a game of chess. And then as he's playing chess with Lelouch, Suzaku jumps across the gap in front of the waterfall and slices the exact correct dummy wire at the same speed and trajectory as the bomb pendulum and doesn't blow it up. And then 
he fucking blasts through the chapel window instead of walking through the front door of the place just to make a dramatic entrance and take out Mao. And then Lelouch wastes a use of Gias by commanding Mao to never speak again, only for Mao to go and die literally five seconds later. And then the last thing that really bothered me <laughs> is that C2 somehow knew what was going on when she was supposedly flying to China to meet with the Chinese Federation, I think, mm -hmm. and had a pistol with a silencer on the ready to kill Mao at the entrance of the chapel outside where I'm sure students will pass by and see what's going on. So now that I've, I've kind of put that out there, like this was just such a mind-blowing episode for me with how impressive Code Geass has been through this first season and continues to be after this point, I was just like, why? Who thought that this episode was a good idea? But now that I've said my piece, I'll let you guys share your thoughts on the episode. Anime. <laughs> Anime logic all the way around. You know, that episode didn't bother me, but now that you like brought all that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to ruin the episode for you. <laughs> you know, I, I love scheming in anime. Um, I think it's because when you're in the heat of the moment, um, seeing whoever the villain or antagonist is kind of get their just desserts. It, it's so satisfying. But yeah, taking a step back, it's like, how did this all even happen? Um, <laughs> it almost feels like, I don't know, like looking at these two episodes, I think the understanding is like it's supposed to be a way for Lelouch to understand the the dangers of letting Gios get to his head, right? Um but yeah, this whole sequence was just like a mind fuck. <laughs> um, not to say I didn't enjoy it, but it was way, way elaborate and it was quite a ride, I guess. I will say, though, that I found it really cool um, that Lelouch used Gias on himself. Like, I thought that was such a clever um a clever choice by the writers. Like, I would have never thought that, but that does make sense to a certain degree i think it's super dangerous because if he says the wrong thing he could like fuck himself up forever um but that, that was really cool and then mao revealing suzaku's secret that he killed his own father um was another kind of really cool moment for me so i think the last part of the episode was was good but um the rest of it was was a little bit crazy but what were your thoughts on this episode aaron i'm curious yeah i was actually gonna bring up um that lelouch uses gias on himself also because i really liked that and it just kind of shows his um, ability to think forward and that he knew like, okay, I have to play chess against this guy again who can read my mind. You know, what am I going to do to make him think that he wins? Um, Cause he didn't, Mao didn't even know that Lelouch told Suzaku how to disarm the bomb. So with all that, he was able to kind of, he knew he was going to lose the chess match. So he had a contingency plan, but then he tricked himself into forgetting the contingency plan it was, it was just, like, super, I guess, convoluted, for lack of a better word, but, like, interesting to see Lelouch's forward thinking at play. Um, and then also with Suzaku's secret, um, I think it kind of just also plays into that whole, like, everybody in this show kind of has a secret, or everybody in this show kind of has internal motivations, and because of Suzaku's past, we can kind of understand why he tries so hard now and why he his views are so different than Lelouch's, um, considering that his dad was, like, another uh, famous Japanese, like, revolutionary and why his views are so different even from his father. 
Yeah, and I think it it's um, Suzaku's secret being revealed and Lelouch having no idea. That really struck me because this whole time, I mean, they haven't given us a lot of backstory on Lelouch and Suzaku's, um, you know, childhood and their friendship. But you get the sense that they know each other so well. Like there's this special bond between the two of them because of what they've been through that just kind of puts their friendship on another level. But here it's like a, a sobering reminder that Lelouch actually doesn't know Suzaku maybe as well as he thought he did. Um, and he also kind of learns that through the fact that Suzaku has a very different approach to kind of freeing or liberating Japan than what Lelouch has in mind. And that's the one thing about this episode. I wrote my notes here, like, why does so much happen in the last two goddamn minutes? Because <laughs> you have, again, you have the elaborate, you have the elaborate scheme of Lelouch taking down Mao's plan. And then Mao just pulls out this wild card and says, that guy killed his dad. Um, but it, it kind of harkens back. I'm going to keep bringing this up throughout the, the theme of contradiction because like up until this point, we know that Suzaku has pushed for a bureaucratic approach to having Japan have it or the Japanese citizens or the elevens have their own autonomy. But it seems here like that was almost founded on a lie because he had to kill, he killed his father and justified it for, him trying to prevent even more killing but then britannia ends up you know wasting away at japan anyways so oh it it was a very interesting thing to realize that you know does suzaku really stand for this noble pursuit of again being bureaucratic and having this law and order approach but on the other hand it seems like he's doing this just to kind of atone for the sins of killing his father Moving on to episode 17, Night. LaDouche poses as the thinker for the school's art class, giving him the perfect opportunity to think about Suzaku Naruto's dark secret. Speaking of art, Euphemism is tasked with judging an art contest at the inauguration of an art museum in Clovis's honor. Elsewhere, Zero the hero agrees to rescue JLF and Holy Swords leader Toto from Britannian captivity and execution in order to convince him to join the Black Knights. As usual, Lancelot arrives to ruin everyone's good time, but a coordinated attack damages the cockpit enough to reveal to all the world that it was Suzaku the whole time. Zero orders a retreat out of shock at his childhood friend's ideological betrayal and laughs his gee-ass off inside his mecha, while euphemism silences all contempt against the Elevenese pilot by announcing Suzaku Nararu as her knight in shining mecha armor. So the only thing, the this episode, I think, um, while every episode you could say, quote unquote, thickens the plot yet again, um, this one I thought really kind of added a ton of complication on top of everything because you get the reveal that Suzaku knows Toto um, and then Lelouch, Toto, and Colin find out that Suzaku is the white knight and then Yuffie chooses Suzaku as her knight. Um, it just, yeah, this I think took the complexity of the plot to the next level. But I do have a question, a clarifying question, because I, I was surprised for some reason that Lelouch was surprised that Suzaku was the white knight. Up until this point, Lelouch and Colin thought that Suzaku was just an engineer in the army, right? Because they knew he's in the, like they knew he was in the military, but they thought he was like an engineer or something. Is that right? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Okay. So that I think that was something that I, I had missed kind of in the earlier episodes. I was like, why are they so surprised? I thought they knew this, but but I guess not. Yeah, I think Euphemism, I'm calling, going to call her Euphemism now. <laughs> um, 
Yuffie's announcement at the end is kind of Suzaku's answer. Again, talking about the previous episode, it was more of like a personal atonement or like punishment for himself that he wanted to go down this noble path. But I think Yuffie acts as his answer to that path of law and order by being like a legitimate bridge between the Elevenese and the Britannians and establishing the sort of cordial relations. Um, so I, looking at these episodes holistically, I like how this episode kind of addresses that point um, and I guess fulfills Suzaku's need for this law and order um, in Area 11. Yeah, and there were, uh, there were two other things in that this episode that particularly stuck out to me. Um, and I think it was towards like the beginning middle of this when Cornelia was um, talking to Yuffie and she said something like, uh, we need to capture Zero for, for Clovis, but also as an apology to Lelouch and Nanali, which again, just how Courtney was saying, like the plot thickens, like it, it's showing that Lelouch's enemies actually do care for him too, even though he thinks that they don't, um, which is an interesting uh, dynamic to um, add to it. Um, but also I, I found it like found it hilarious that um, Yuffie picked Suzaku to be his her knight as a Japanese person when Nina loves Yuffie and is like freaking out oh, that yeah. she picked a Japanese person to be her knight. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> Damn, Nina. Ugh. We'll get we'll, we'll talk more about her in the upcoming episodes, but fucking Nina, dude. Yeah, when she was like freaking out, you know, cuz her her hero, the person that she she whacked herself she off to <laughs> that she simps so hard for um actually does have sympathy and compassion for the japanese or the 11s she like could not fucking handle that and i'm like of course you can't fucking handle that you can't handle anything you know like why are you here <laughs> and it just fueled her racism even more because she's like the person i love loves those japanese doesn't love me that's such a good point. She is racist, isn't she? Like yeah. when um when they were in the hotel in the first half of the season and she was like freaking out because there were Japanese people with guns. She's like, "Oh my god, the Japanese." Uh, I was like, "Man, you're just you're so stupid." Or the how she reacted to Suzaku joining their class. When everyone else was like maybe a little uncomfortable, she was like having a full-on panic attack in the back of the classroom because there's a <laughs> Japanese guy in their class. Like, "Damn, this bitch is really racist." Which makes me question like why are you in Area 11, Nina? Why don't you just fly back, fly the fuck back home to the Britannian Empire, which is which apparently has taken over all of North America, um, so that you can stop with your your strange racial escapades or whatever. <laughs> and moving on, there is apparently an episode 17.5, "The Truth of the Mask," which is a recap episode. But again, we live in an age of streaming services, so fuck that. <laughs> and in episode 18, I order you, Suzaku Kururugi, euphemism knights Suzaku Nareru in an awkwardly received ceremony while Zero the hero establishes a hierarchy within the Black Knights. Diet Hard suggests assassinating the new knight as a symbolic move, which Kala nearly does as a pizza party thrown in Suzaku's honor. How rude. But Zero decides instead to capture him during a visit to an island military base. With the help of rogue scientist Rakshada, they encase his Lancelot in a sand trap, but Euphemism's big brother, Schneisel, arrives via starship Avalon to basically carpet bomb the island, Suzaku included, in order to eliminate Britannia's biggest threat. 
an angsty high school student with a taste for the theatrical. So my only note on this episode is that um, their brother Schneitzel is just like so ambiguous to me because they give him this very kind and soft face, but some of his actions and some of his choices make you feel like you don't really know who he is at this point. I mean, he's so quick to um, sacrifice Suzaku, even though he knows that his younger sister just knighted him and that he's not just some Japanese person anymore. Um, But yeah, I I find him at this point in the story to be super ambiguous. And I think that's intentional. um, And it's it's very hard to read him overall. I mean, at first glance, I think he just wanted to eliminate a threat to the empire and and to basically the royal family. But yeah, he is quite an ambiguous character. One thing I wanted to bring up is I believe this is the first time that Zero reveals that he's not Japanese. And either of you can correct me if I'm wrong. But I think it's brought up when he's going through the hierarchy of the Black Knights. I think he brought it up when he first met, and Aaron, maybe you know the name of this character, um, the Japanese guy who monopolizes the Sakuradite. Um, it was him, Colin, Ogi, and then that loudmouth redhead guy. And Lelouch shows his face to the Japanese guy. And then he doesn't reveal that it's Lelouch, but we we learn that they have history together. And he tells colin and all of them like you have no he might be britannian but you have no worries he hates britannia is that right aaron is that accurate (laughs) yeah he did reveal it there at least to like the core group of the knights and this might be the first time he said it to like the rest of the group um but yeah that was the like the reveal to the core the core knight group okay yeah thanks everyone for for clarifying that but yeah now that it's it's out in the open i just thought it was interesting because you know there was hesitation about that but he basically declares that you know race doesn't matter in the fight against against tyranny, um, and the only other note I have here is again going back to Diethard, Diethard, Diethard. <laughs> um, Zero kind of chides him for um, trying to force Kalan to assassinate Suzaku, and Diethard says you can't take the world without dirtying your ha- dirtying your hands, and this kind of goes into and going back to contradiction, I think another sub-theme of that is the use of propaganda throughout this part. Um, Diet Heart is kind of like the epitome of this propaganda sub-theme where he wants to document history being made by Zero and putting Zero on this pedestal, but he wants to do it in a way where he's kind of fabricating the events. Um, hearkening back to the way that I feel like this rebellion is starting to be built upon a lie. Um, so that was one thing that really stuck out to me with this episode in particular. Yeah, definitely. This episode for me is, uh, it was one of these things where I noticed it, but it's, it's one thing that I love about the show, but it also kind of drives me crazy as the show goes. It's like why Lelouch doesn't identify himself to certain people. And in this episode specifically, it was Colin. And it's like, they, there are so many little minor issues that could be solved. If Lelouch was just like, Hey, it's me. Let me explain the situation to you. Like when Colin is trying to assassinate Suzaku, if she knew who Lelouch was and kind of his backstory, she would have understood why Lelouch stopped him there. And it's just one of those moments where like, I get why Lelouch isn't doing it. And it adds to like the overall mystery and intrigue of the show. But it's another one of those things where it's like, please just tell Colin who you are already. That's a really good point. And I think this is something I want to comment on when we reach the last episode of this season. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's a very good point. It's like 
to what we were talking about earlier in this episode, like he's at this point got very little to lose if he reveals his identity, at least to a couple of people, because he doesn't really have that that connection with his high school life anymore. He's pretty much just hiding things to protect Nunnally. Um, but, you know, there, there's got to be there could be other ways to keep her safe while also not having to drag on this like facade and like you know, you know, bend over backwards to try and keep his identity hidden when it could, to your point, Aaron, um, serve a purpose or have a benefit to his overall goal. And at this point, too, Yuffie knows who he is. So if he's like worried about specific people not knowing like who he is, because she learned who she was from the meeting with him back when he almost assassinated her. So like why if, if someone who he thinks is his enemy and is directly related to the enemy knows who he is and he's okay with it why would he why would he have certain issues about his supposed allies kind of knowing who he was yeah exactly and i think the i think yuffie holds that special place in his heart so he's he's willing to kind of make that exception but it's like if if yuffie is that important to you from your childhood where you're like okay with her knowing about it when to your point she's literally his enemy why not tell nunnally then just tell nunnally what the hell's going on because she's actually very concerned about lelouch because he's not Mm -hmm. himself she's he's never there um and she's always kind of wondering like what the hell's going on with my brother at that point just tell the poor girl so she's not tormented wondering like does her brother not love her anymore or is he in trouble or something so yeah there's just I, i can see it being very problematic and probably one of the less wise choices on Lucia's part to keep his identity so tightly hidden. Which is weird because it feels like Lelouch is doing all of this because he wants to create a better world for Nunley. But yeah, he's he's slowly losing his connection with her um, in the process. Again, harkening back to that theme of he, he doesn't really know how to keep his personal life in check along with, I guess you could call this his, his work life. Um, and I think as I was saying earlier, I think that's just a testament to him being a naive high school student at the same time as being like a, a rebel leader. <laughs> and in episode 19, Island of the Gods, in a strange turn of events, Ladouche, Euphemism, Kalin, and Suzaku Nararu end up on a completely different island for no apparent reason. Kalin buddies up with Suzaku and reveals her role as a black knight, while Yuffie deduces that Ladouche is indeed Zero the Hero. The four end up falling into the ruins of a mysterious thought elevator that Schnitzel, Leroy, and his assistant Cecil have been investigating, and Zero the Hero takes the opportunity to steal another experimental nightmare, dubbed the Gawain. We learn Ladouche used cheat code Gias on Suzaku and commanded him to live in order to ignore his orders to kill Zero, and we also learn that the Chinese are coming, the Chinese are coming, with an exiled Japanese government ready to take the country back. So I'll start off by saying, you know, the episode's going to be a good one when you get the TVMA nudity in the upper left corner of the screen. As soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. There's tits in this episode. (laughs) And I do have to say that Suzaku is best boy in this moment, because even though he literally like body slams Colin while she's butt naked and her tits are kind of flapping everywhere with that anime physics, um, he stays the course and he commits to his sworn duty as a Britannian knight and just arrests her versus like getting flustered and looking at her tits and being all like, oh my God, what's happening? So yeah, the highlight of this episode, I think we're, uh, we're Colin's plot. God. <laughs> <laughs> and I think this episode too has that meme that exists in, in the world. Um, I think it's when Suzaku is fishing and he like grabs the fish and holds it in his hands. It's, I think the meme is like, 
somebody put um, subtitles on there. It says, like, I'll now proceed to pleasure myself with this fish. I think it's from the Code Geass Abridged <laughs> series. Um, but, yeah, I just I enjoy seeing that scene because I'm like, oh, there it is. There's that meme. <laughs> What's with this show and, like, pleasuring yourself? <laughs> well, to be fair, that wasn't, like, literally <laughs> part of the show. But, you know, maybe maybe he had those thoughts because Nina didn't hold back. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> But I think with this episode overall, um, I really loved these interactions between Lelouch and Yuffie and Suzaku and Colin. Um, I think Suzaku and Colin kind of accepted who they were in this moment. Suzaku as you know, his father's killer and Colin is a black knight who really no longer cared about protecting her school identity. And then on like the youth, the Yuffie and Lelouch side, um, they have this, I don't know, this like moment of like reconnection um, and Lelouch is now kind of indebted to to Yuffie because she knew all along that he was zero and, and she chose to protect his identity, um, even though he's causing a lot of problems for the rest of the rest of their family. But I'm curious to know um, your guys' thoughts on Suzaku accepting his his actions with killing his father at this point, because, you know, every other time it's come up. I think when C2 uses that shock imagery and then when Mao um, reveals his secret, like he freaks the fuck out and he, he has a hard time kind of, you know, remembering those moments. But here it's like all of a sudden a, a switch was flipped and he's like, I'm good. I killed my dad. It is what it is. W- what are your guys thoughts on that? Because I thought it was very, very strange for him. Um, yeah. So I, I kind of thought it was like almost like a rep- repressed memory where the first time he is there when Mao brings it up. It's like the first time he even thought about it in a long time where he almost created his own uh, reality to how things actually went. In his mind, for the longest time, it was, oh, my dad killed himself and now I'm doing my thing. And then Mal brought it up and he was like, oh, no, wait, like I actually did do that and nobody knows it. I've been living this lie the whole time. Um, And so now that the memory is there, I feel like he just kind of feels like he has to. Uh, except it has to come to an understanding of it um, in order to move forward with his, you know, diplomatic methodology, if that makes sense. <laughs> no, yeah, it, it definitely does. Um, I think I kind of see it similarly where, you know, I, I pointed out a quote that he says to Colin here where it kind of acknowledges um, the deed, like the, the dirty deed that he did to his father. What do results gain the wrong way leave you in the end? So I think he's still like wrestling with the fact that he had killed his father, but he's a little bit more at ease with it. Um, going back to what I said with the the previous episode, like Yuffie is there to kind of bridge that gap that was missing um, in providing the the 11s with a chance at being able to be like independent and such. Moving onward to episode 20, Battle at Kyushu. Britannia dukes it out with the Japanese rebels backed by China, and despite the rumors, Zero the Hero refuses to ally the knights with their cause, seeking to make Tokyo an independent nation without their puppet government. Suzaku Naruto thinks of abandoning his knighthood to atone for his personal demons as he struggles against the puppet rebels in Lancelot 2.0, until Euphemism confesses her true feelings for him, thanks to indirect advice from her number one fanatic, Nina, of all the goddamn people. Zero the hero and Shitsu arrive in Gawain's world to give Lancelot some HP and assist Suzaku in eliminating the puppet rebel threat, to which the Chinese Federation responds, Nope, wasn't us. 
Suzaku agrees to remain as Euphemism's knight as she vows to stop being the political princess and instead to become the people's princess. So I just have two things that I want to comment on with this episode. First of all, really quick, surely finding that note about Zero, I'm like, what a waste of Gios. Like, if I were Lelouch, I would just be so fucking annoyed. Um, Like, first of all, Shirley already got in the way at that battle and, like, finding out about his identity. Like, she's already been a huge pain in his ass. And now he wastes a use of Gios on her. Because once he uses it on somebody... Um, as we learned by this point, like he he can't use it again. So I would just be so fucking annoyed. And the only other thing I wanted to say about this episode is, man, Nina just keeps getting worse. Like she's, we learned by this point, she's super book smart, but she's so fucking stupid when it comes to street smarts or like anything else in life, really. Who thinks it's a good idea to bum rush a, a person of royalty, like their vehicle when there's guards everywhere? And then when she gets, understandably so, pinned down to the ground by her guards, She's like whining and crying like a little bitch. I'm like, what is going on? Like, who raised you, man? Like, you are just out of control, Nina. Like, someone needs to slap you across the face. And send you back to Britannia. (laughs) This was the episode where um, Lelouch and Suzaku teamed up, right? Like, this was that fight, right? Yeah, where they worked together to take down the Chinese Federation. I think because... I think Lelouch was saying something like he wanted Japan to be completely independent of another nation's control, right? Like without having to be used as puppets, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, that's one of my... Well, obviously, the fight is really cool, and it's cool to see them fight together. But one of my favorite things about the show is this kind of constant duality between the friendship of Lelouch and Suzaku, but the rivalry or, um, I guess battle between zero and suzaku um where uh you know here we see them teaming up kind of reluctantly i guess on suzaku's part to achieve a greater goal in a way that would have been reflected of you know lelouch and suzaku working together with something like catching the cat or saving nanali um with suzaku not knowing that zero actually is lelouch um, but it was just really cool to see because they work so well together, but their viewpoints are so different. And we see co- time and time again what they're capable of if they do work together, and yet they never will because of their ideological difference that ultimately forces them apart even more. Yeah, I think that's a really good call out. I hadn't even really thought about it that way that, yeah, every moment that they've had together, every obstacle they've had to face big or small like the cat versus like taking down the chinese federation um they have just worked in perfect harmony um and the at the end of the day they want the same thing it's just they want to go about different means of of getting to those goals yeah Aaron, listening to you mention that it i feel like you could probably write a research paper just discussing like the dichotomy of of lelouch and suzaku (laughs) i mean like the I think that's the folk, one of the focal points of the show is like their their dynamic, um, but that was a really great point about again they're working together here but they don't really realize that they're working together. And I think in our last podcast episode on Code Geass, um, we kind of talked a little bit about the fact that this show explores relationships in in a very like intimate and um, very pressing way. And this is just another great example of that. That here's another relationship that. Um, has so much potential, yet with everything else going around and all of the external influences just continues to to fall apart or kind of butt heads. 
Yeah, it's almost like one of those things where you, you almost wish you could see an alternate telling where they were working together the whole time and just to see like what they were capable of. Because just the two of them took out the entire Chinese Federation. They didn't need anyone else, and they just they just did it. They, they worked together, put aside their differences, and got it done. Um, but because those differences exist, it's preventing them from taking that one step further and actually achieving what is ultimately the same end goal. Um, so it's just like a super interesting dynamic and dichotomy between the two of them. Maybe they can do like a almost like a Marvel's what if. <laughs> it would probably take these two seasons and condense it down to like three episodes. Like they would just take the world by storm if they were that, you know, insane. <laughs> In episode 21, the school festival declaration, time for the archetypal Bunkasai episode. After Nunnally opens the school festival with a piss poor attempt at a cat call, we are treated to a flurry of close encounters between our cacophony of characters as they try concealing their hidden identities and agendas from each other. The creation of the festival's world record 12-meter pizza is quickly overshadowed by euphemism presence at the festival, and mass panic breaks out until she announces her plan to establish a zone of Nippon, where the Elevenese can live in peace. She believes it to be a step towards returning to the good old days with Ladouche and Nunnally, but Ladouche internally chides it as an empty dream that wastes away his plans for the rebellion, much like how the 12-meter pizza wastes away a practical use of student council funding or how Nina wastes away a practical use of physical space. <laughs> yeah, she's racist again in this fucking episode. Oh my god, fucking Nina. Um, but I had more anxiety watching this episode than I think any other episode this season. Um, probably more anxiety than Lelouch was experiencing on screen because everyone and their fucking mother was at this festival. I mean, like, everybody. It was, like, the perfect storm, which ended up, like, decently okay, except for... Uh, Yuffie's announcement at the end but in terms of like the potential for someone's identity or two people to cross paths it was like just it was horrendous to watch but also like super intriguing to watch it was heartbreaking seeing that pizza dough land on that tree and seeing <laughs> oh my C2 get really sad <laughs> oh yeah she just wanted some goddamn pizza <laughs> Can you blame her? <laughs> no, yeah, I can't. Um, I, yeah, this episode, not that it was filler, but it just felt very sitcom-y in a way. And maybe it's because it's the Bunkasai. It just wants to provide a little bit of comic relief while still advancing the plot. Um, but yeah, this kind of made my butthole pucker a bit <laughs> when each character was about to find out about like their where their ideologies stand or where their loyalties lie. It was kind of like hot and cold because the whole episode was just funny and kind of giving us that comic relief that we need once in a while in this show. But then it ends on such like an intense note when Yuffie gives her announcement. And the first time I watched this, I didn't quite understand the gravity of, of that announcement of, of her choice to move forward with, I think, what's like Schneitzel's original plan. But watching it a second time, I realized that the Japanese being confined to such a small area, um, they're not really, even though they, they try to disguise it as like, oh, you'll be free in this, you know, 
this specific area, they're not really going to be allowed to live freely because another nation is dictating whether or not they get to have that freedom and what that freedom looks like. Um, so it just, I think watching it a second time, that really hit home for me. Like, okay, yes, now I get why this is such an important um, plot twist and why Lelouch is just reacting the way that he is to hearing this news. Yeah, again, to what I said in the synopsis, like Lelouch is enraged at the idea because it's not, like you said, true freedom for for 11. I call them 11ese, but for the 11s. And it seems very naive on Yuffie's part to, I think Nunley mentions like, oh, this is just a way to, or no, sorry, Yuffie has an internal monologue where she says like, now it can be a way for Lelouch and Nunley to actually enjoy their lives together. But yeah, it, it basically throws a wrench in his plans. Um, and I think in the beginning of the episode, there are there's a scene where you get perspectives of different 11 citizens in like one of the Japanese ghettos. And one of them kind of scoffs at Suzaku's um, ideology of trying to harmonize with the Britannians as like the piece of slavery. Um, so I think that's kind of what this announcement of the zone of Nippon. I don't know the official name of it, but that's kind of what this zone embodies for them. The fact that Yuffie, you, you said that she was kind of naive, or um, well, I don't remember the exact word you just used. I think you said naive, right? Yeah. Um, the the difference between the naivety of Yuffie with the like cold calculation of Lelouch is also super interesting because they're both kind of figureheads of their respective revolution. They're both, again, kind of like with Suzaku, they both have different goals. But Yuffie has such a much more like bright and optimistic outlook on how they can achieve that goal. And she wants to do it through being charming and believing in the good in people. Whereas Lelouch is far more cynical. He's calculating. He had a line where he's like, I've thought about this and the outcome isn't what you think it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was just super interesting to me also to kind of, again, see like there's now a third ideology, whereas one like Suzaku is very bureaucratic. One like Lelouch is very like cold and conniving and calculating. And then now we have Yuffie's, which is a lot more like believing in people and trying to find common ground and basically build it together um, despite differences. Oh, that's a very, very good point. Um, two more things I just wanted to say about this episode that are really stupid. I liked Cecil's short bit where she was hitting Lloyd's head in a whack-a-mole game, <laughs> kind of like take, taking out her anger at her, at her working for her supervisor. Um, and the way that Yuffie's cover is blown, correct me if I'm wrong, it's blown because of the fucking wind. <laughs> yeah i think that's true quite literally <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, that just caught me so it was just caught me like dumbfounded it was like that's it like nature is going to reveal that you're here at the festival there's no no like assassination plot or anything it's just the wind i mean and, honestly what was she thinking sitting up high on the <laughs> stairs like in front of everybody and these cameras and stuff with just a hat on to conceal her identity so she was kind of asking for it <laughs> And her hair was still, like, hanging out the back, too. <laughs> yeah, it was. yeah, that's true. <laughs> in episode 22, Bloodstained Yuffie, in the preparations for the inauguration ceremony of Nippon Land, 
Suzaku praises it as being the bureaucratic action he was yearning for, while LaDouche sees it as a blow to garnering support for the rebellion. Zero the hero appears at the ceremony seeking a private audience with euphemism, and cordially accepts her plan after revealing it was done for Nanli's sake. Unfortunately, at the cost of a bad joke, LaDouche loses control of cheat code Gias and causes Yuffie to execute Order 66 on all the Elevenese attending the ceremony. Making a fucked up situation even worse, he tries to save face as Zero the Hero by declaring that it's a trap set up by Britannia, and he orders the Black Knights to save the Elevenese and eliminate Yuffie. I... Okay, I knew this episode was coming, and this is the one that sticks out in my mind the most um, for this first season. And I know, I'm skipping ahead just a touch here, I know that um, her death in the next episode is super tragic, but honestly, I found this part to be far more like intense and, and um, kind of gut-wrenching than her actually being killed, because you, you can just see the horror in her face and and Lucia even comments I think a little bit later that she's the only person who resisted Gias um for a, a little bit after he activated it because it was just w- what he commanded her to do on accident was just so against her character so against her beliefs and everything that she's been working so hard toward um I thought that was just to me the the worst part of this whole this whole moment to kind of have to sit through I thought it was just way more intense than her actual death yeah, definitely. This uh, this part is one of the more tragic parts of the whole series, um, and like you said, definitely you know sticks with you as one of those things that you remember um, coming back to it. Um, it's 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 heartbreaking to see Lelouch lose control in that way in such a devastating way, um, all because of a, a joke to um, like a one off comment that he wasn't even trying to you know affect her in that way and to have such a massive repercussion for that um is is like devastating to watch yeah absolutely it it truly was an innocent mistake like he he's done a lot of things a lot of terrible things intentionally um throughout this whole show but this is the one that I think is is going to sit with him um, or weigh the most with him and and sit with him the longest. Um, And I think it just this was another part that made me question C2 because I'm like, she had to have known on some level that this was going to happen. She kind of implied it in the earlier episodes with Mao that people succumb to their Gias power. Why didn't she warn him? Like, it just makes me frustrated with C2 in this moment because she could have told him long ago, like at some point, Gias may become too powerful for you to fully control. Just be careful. And she never really does that. I mean, maybe she implies it in certain points, but she never just comes out and tells him like, be careful. I've been through this many times. This is what happens. I feel like part of that is, again, assuming, again, I don't really know a lot about Cece at this point as much as as you and Aaron, but she's trying not to put like, play her hand in these events for fear of like what that's going to do um granted it this whole situation was fucked anyway on on lelouch's part but that's part of why i think she she wants to kind of keep things to herself for now um just so that she can't influence the events much as as the power of gios itself does and on that point um as i said this this whole episode was just fucked um I think I mentioned at the end of our previous podcast episode that this is seeing 
how Gios creates major turning points in the story and looking at the danger of his power, that's all coming to play here. Um, kind of hearkening to that quote where, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Um, the other thing, again, going back to contradictions, like Lelouch tries to save face by saying that, um, as I said to the synopsis, like this was all a trap by Britannia just so he can cover up his lie. And just, again, thinking about that, it's just, it, that's just so fucked up to me. Like putting all the blame on this person that you know to be, to be very wholesome and innocent to have like this about face because of, because of you. And then you putting the blame on them. It's, I don't know, man. Like, I don't know what to think about Lelouch, whether I like him or not, but this kind of, this kind of turned him off a bit for me. Yeah, the, the thing about Lelouch, um, now that you bring that up, is that he doesn't handle failure well. You know, this was one of the few times where he had a flat-out fail. And instead of owning up to it, he resorted to lying and scheming to try and make it better. Um, and really the only other time we see him lose and fail was with Mao. Um, and as a result of losing that, he had that like mental breakdown um, after the chess match when before Suzaku broke in or um, resorted to using his Gigas on Shirley to try and erase his mistakes again. Like he never owned up to the fact that he killed uh, Shirley's dad or, you know, that he was caught in the crossfire of that mountain battle. He just erased it and moved on. And here we have, once again, he's unable to come to terms with his failure and he's just trying to erase it and move on or pin it on someone else and move on. Holy shit. That's a really good point. Like I didn't even think about that. Every time he has had a big F, like he, he just tries to dance around it or sweep it under the rug or use it to his advantage. And in this part, it just makes like Yuffie's already such a tragic character by this point and by the next episode. And if you think about it in, in that context, it's like, not only does he literally kill her, but he kills everything that she's worked hard for. She he kills her reputation. Um, he he kills what people have known to be her kindness. I mean, every last ounce of what Yuffie is and what she stood for, he kills in this moment. Yeah, and she's forever going to be remembered as the princess who tricked the Japanese and and killed them. Yeah, man, this is just all fucked up. <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess on a lighthearted note, or I guess you could call this like dark comedy. One more note I hear. I loved her line where she says to the um, 11s audience, I have a favor to ask. Could you all die, please? Oh, my God. Yeah, that was like, <laughs> what the fuck? Like watching that for the first time, like her eyes are all bugged out and red because she's under under Gia's power. I was just like, holy shit. And then she holds that gun up to the crowd, just shoots the guy in the chest. I'm like, this whole thing is crazy. But yeah, I did kind of have a small chuckle at that. In that really sad moment, I did have a small chuckle. And she, and she says it in like her, in a very innocent voice. So yeah. It, it just makes it a little more, like more hilarious, but also really just, it makes it seem dark too. Yeah. It was, it was all around fucked up. <laughs> it's kind of like the, that line in Jojo, um, use this dagger to kill yourself. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what that part reminded me of. But again, it's, it's such a, such a morbid scene, but somewhat of a comic relief, I guess. In episode 23, at least with sorrow, the Black Knights attack the Britannian forces around the stadium with unhinged vengeance. Suzaku Naruto tries to find euphemism in the chaos, 
but bears witness to Zero the hero killing his beloved princess at point-blank range and immediately transports her to the ER aboard Starship Avalon. Yuffie fights the effects of Cheat Code Geass and comes to her senses, not realizing the GTA rampage she's caused. Suzaku tearfully keeps up the facade by saying that Nippon Land was a resounding su success as she rips in peace. His grieving is interrupted by R2-V2, a girl seemingly of Shitsu's race who spills the beans on what happened to Yuffie. Meanwhile, Zero the Hero declares his intent to establish the United States of Japan, what an original name, which riles the Elevenese up enough to mount insurrections across the country. He and the Black Knights advance on the Tokyo settlement and gives the Britannians an ultimatum to surrender by midnight. When they refuse, the city starts to collapse, much like my brain trying to keep up with all the what-the-fuck moments of these past two episodes. <laughs> oh, also, apparently Shitsu has been take Shitsu has been talking to an invisible Lady Marianne, aka Ladouche's mother, this whole time. Oh, also, also, apparently, apparently, Jeremiah is back from the dead as Orange Mewtwo. Man, I love a good redemption arc. <laughs> so I, I have one question right off the bat with this episode, because this is something I was noodling on, and I'm like, I don't fucking understand it. So my my interpretation of Gias is that Gias continues to be in effect until the person fully completes whatever it was that um, Lelouch commanded them to do. Like, for example, that girl that carves the, the um, that tallies the, the days that go by on the wall at school, like, she's still doing that even to the latter part of um, season one because she hasn't fulfilled her goal yet or her, her command from Lelouch. What's interesting, though, in this episode is that when Yuffie is in that hospital bed and she's with Suzaku, she has a moment where she's like, oh, you're, you're Japanese, aren't you? And then she like, you see her eyes go red, like she's about to, um, you know, fulfill whatever it was, fulfill Lucia's um, command under Gias, but then she's able to suppress it right away and then it doesn't come back. That was just, I feel like, I get why they did that because they needed to have, um, you know, that, that last moment between Suzaku and Yuffie, but I was just so confused why she suddenly had the ability to suppress it pretty easily um even though she hadn't fulfilled her her command from Alush to kill all the japanese like is my understanding of how gias works in that sense correct or am i missing something uh no i, I think i think you under you got it um it is a little weird that she's like seemingly the only person in the whole series that's able to somewhat repress it and i think even Lelouch like commented on that in the other episode where he was like oh yeah she resisted momentarily so i don't really think they explain why she's able to do it but it is a little weird yeah it just seems like a like a plot device um for her and suzaku to have their their final moments which overall that was that was really sad because obviously they cared about each other they had just confessed to each other and then suzaku's driven to to hate something that he's that's not innate in his personality because he's just so pissed off at this point <laughs> And I think for him to, again, cover up the fact that she's committed this mass murder and she asks him if she, she made Japan happy, like, that just makes this whole situation even more fucked. Like, oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, like, I don't blame Suzaku for saying that. Like, what's he supposed to tell her? Like, nah, you actually killed everybody in that stadium and now everyone hates <laughs> you. But it's okay because you're going to die anyway. Um, yeah, it, it was really tragic, though. Like, just her asking that question and him having to to lie to her in in her last moments um and i think this is the point where we see nina like 
freak the fuck out, right? When she hears the news that Yuffie's died, she like literally goes crazy and has like that crazy anime face and she's like <laughs> screaming. I, I was just, I was like, now she's annoying and she's crazy. Fucking loony. <laughs> <laughs> the only other note I have in this episode, um, kind of bringing it into a modern scope. I like how Zero says, I think towards the end of the episode, the only path left to me is forward, which feels like Lelouch is pulling an Aaron Yeager. Or did Aaron Yeager pull a Lelouch? <laughs> I think if you go chronologically, it's Aaron Yeager pulling a Lelouch, right? Because when did when did Attack on Titan first, first start? 2012, though, wasn't it? I think it was 2012. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah. Maybe that was an homage by Attack on Titan to uh, to Code Geass. In the penultimate episode 24, the collapsing stage, turns out LaDouche used cheat code Geass on the city engineers to cause the implosion spectacle and hopefully summon Emperor Dad. Cornelia and her forces fight their way out of the rubble, and the Black Knights establish a command center at Ashford Academy. Suzaku Naruru, seething with rage, confronts Zero the Hero and Shitsu, and Lancelot faces off against Gawain's world until it once again falls into a trap. Meanwhile, Ponytail Bitch regains her memory and incapacitates Ogi at the command center. Meanwhile, meanwhile, Zero corners Cornelia at the government bureau and uses her own Gios-possessed General Darleton to take down her nightmare. And Zero rewards his help with a one-way ticket to Kingdom Come. Meanwhile, 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 R2-V2 pays a visit to Nunnally and for the second time, our handicapped heroine is held hostage. You know, for someone who claims to do everything for his sister, LaDouche is really shit at taking care of his sister. <laughs> I So I wrote a note here about the opening for this episode. I have no recollection that there was a third opening this season and that it was just for the last two episodes. Um, I liked it better than the second opening, but I was surprised by that. Like, I don't know. I don't know why they had a, a third opening for this season. The animation for that... Uh, intro is kind of weird too though because it's a lot of just like stills um, there's not a whole lot of like stuff going on it's like just character stills which is kind of weird compared to the other two um, intros yeah it's almost like they're downgrading the opening every single opening like the first one was great had a you know its own original set of, of uh, animation and, and scenes and then the second one reused all that imagery and the third one they do, were just like let's not even bother animating anything let's just put these stills these these pictures of all the characters up there so yeah it was I don't know it was a weird choice I I don't know why I didn't remember it maybe because it was just such a, a random thing to happen in these last two episodes yeah, I was going to say it probably just highlights the, the change in the arc here because it's, yeah, like the final, I guess the final battle for the season. Um, but yeah, the way that they kind of hashed those visuals together was was odd. Um, the song is called Hitomi no Subasa or Eyes Wing by Access for anyone who wants to add that to their anime playlist. It has a very upbeat techno, kind of reminds me of like the Mortal Kombat theme, but that's all I have to say about it. And the, I think with this episode, the only like comment I have really is that like damn Lelouch is all in at this point like he's fucked up so bad with Yuffie he's just like I, I don't care anymore he he becomes fully savage and, and has is definitely not turning back because 
I think the the biggest example of this is when he uses Darleton to trick Cornelia and then immediately just disintegrates him after. He's like, you fulfilled your purpose. You have no use to me anymore. I'm just going to fire a laser at you and just turn you into dust. I think going back to um, a point that Aaron made previously, it I think at this part of the story, like it seems like Lelouch has fully embraced the, the zero identity um, just because of how again, how fucked up everything has gotten up until this point. And he just really needs to follow through on what he had originally hoped for, which, again, was leading this rebellion against Britannia. Um, so it's almost like no holds barred here in, in reaching that goal. There's a there's an interesting line in the episode um, kind of related to that where... Um, He's talking, or he's in like the, the bridge of their command center and Kaguya comes in and she's like, oh yeah, I know you're going to win because I'm the goddess of victory. And Lelouch says, well, I'm sorry, but I made a deal with the devil and I'm not in the mood to be any friends with gods right now. <laughs> and it's kind of like he recognized that himself almost, that he has given up that side of him and that he's just fully embraced the the deal with the devil at this point where he's willing to do anything to achieve his goal and that he doesn't need or want the benevolence of a God on his side. Yeah. I think Lush technically is classified as kind of like that anti-hero, right? Yeah. I would call him that. Yeah. So I think that's just to your point, that's just him. He's, he's fully embraced it at this point. He's, he's not holding back. That's for sure. <laughs> Poor Kaguya. <laughs> And in the final episode, number 25, Zero, Zero the hero reveals his true identity to Cornelia and uses cheat code Gias on her to extract information about his mother's death, but to no avail. Shitsu interrupts the interrogation and informs Ledouche that Nunnally is being held hostage on that strange island from before, which prompts him to drop everything and go rescue her, throwing the Black Knights in disarray. Speaking of disarray, Nina has gone fucking loony and plans to have another explosive moment with a city-clearing bomb strapped to the school's Ganymede Mecca, as if we needed to see more of her dumbass. <laughs> the pair return to the Thought Elevator ruins and experience a brain freeze when Jeremutu swoops in to try and get payback on the man who ruined his life with a vitamin C-infused fruit. Shitsu holds him off by anheroing with Jeremutu, but not before she plants a big one on Ledouche. Kalen tracks down Zero the Hero to the cavern and watches his mask get shot off by an escaped Suzaku Naruru to reveal that it was their old pal Ledouche the whole time. Ledouche begs Suzaku to help him save Nunnally, but he won't hear any of it. They decide to end their dispute by shooting at each other, but of course the screen cuts to Soprano Black before we can find out who won the duel. Jibun, whoa. Man, fuck Nina. Like, she is just all over the place. She is just a nuisance to everybody, and I'm over her. I'm so over her. I mean, she's just, like, literally about to suicide bomb everybody because she's mad that Yuffie died and that there's Japanese people everywhere. Thank God that bomb wasn't strapped to a table, though. 
Oh my god. <laughs> it would also have been explosive. <laughs> Honestly, okay, we're, let's we're going to revisit that scene really quick because my god, poor Table Coon in that moment. And also poor Nunnally for having to listen cuz again, with her being blind, I'm sure she's got like supersonic hearing. She's probably like ro- like rolling down the the hall thinking, "What the fuck is that noise that I'm hearing?" And then she probably realizes that Nina is whacking it to Table Coon while looking at pictures of Yuffie. Like, oh my God, Nina is just the worst. And this just solidifies it. Like, she's about to kill everybody all because she's pissed off about a bunch of stuff that, you know, everyone is having to deal with. (laughs) So I have a couple of questions for this really important episode in the series. Um, First off, why was Colin so upset that Lelouch was zero the whole time. I know it's a huge reveal for her, and I can understand if she's kind of experiencing some shock, knowing that not only is zero Britannian, but he's also her classmate. Um, but why does she suddenly think that he used the Japanese people? I mean, this whole time you've been following him with, with almost like no question, um, and you knew he was Britannian the whole time. And that still didn't bother her. But then once she realized it was a loose, she was like, Zero's the worst. I've been tricked. You've been using the Japanese the whole time. It's like, why why is why is Lelouch's identity the the factor that changes her view on Zero all of a sudden? I'm I'm curious to know what your guys' thoughts are. I didn't really I haven't really thought of that. Um trying to think of it in the context of this episode. I know that like Lelouch as Zero abandons the battle pretty quickly to head over to this island. And I think Ogi had told Kellen to, to go follow him. Um, and I, I don't know if at that point was the, the, the tides of the battle were turning against the Black Knights. Um, and so when I guess Kellen finds out that it's Lelouch, that she kind of puts two, two and two together where he really hasn't been doing this for the sake of the Japanese the whole time and sees that this is more of like a, a personal gain for him um, because he, he abandons the cause immediately to, to go save his sister because I think she realizes that that's what's more important to him. I don't know. That's just me kind of thinking it through right now, but I don't know if you have any differing or similar thoughts, Aaron. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I think I think part of it is that it's someone that she knew. Um, so I feel like there's there might be an element of uh, betrayal or distrust there because he isn't just some random guy now. He's somebody who she's known for months now and has been going to school with and I I think considered a friend. Um, But also I think that through the the process of him ditching the battle and him announcing that not only had been captured, I think she's starting to reveal that uh, Lelouch's stake in this is more of a personal vendetta. It's more of a uh, revenge-driven thing against the Britannian Empire and Britannian family, more so than it is about Japanese liberation to him. And so I think it's another like means-to-the-end argument where I think Lelouch even said, like, well, the, you're getting your Japanese liberation anyway. What's the big deal? And for her, it's like, well, you're your heart's not in the right place. You're doing this for a different reason. Even if we're getting the results we want, like, are you doing this because you want, are you doing this because you want the Japanese to be free or are you doing it because it's an outcome of destroying this family that had hurt you in the past? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. Okay, th- that makes sense because I was just so confused as to why she suddenly flipped the script um, so quickly on somebody that had given her, up until that point, very little to doubt him. Um, but yeah, that, that makes sense. And I think the the connections there with Lelouch, like his sister and all of that, um, just kind of probably flooded Colin's mind all at once. And she was probably like, what the fuck, man? What the fuck? And I think, um, you know, we've been talking about how Lelouch has been embracing the Zero identity to the point where Zero had become a symbol too big to fail, which I think is the reason why he was so effective in leading a rebellion against Britannia versus these other like splinter rebel groups like the JLF, or I think there was the Yamato Alliance that was mentioned in the first half. But he abandons that here, again, to, to what Aaron was saying um, because of the personal stake that he has in this. Um, so it does seem like, to use that chess analogy that has come up so many times uh, in this show, he's using the Black Knights and the participants of this rebellion almost as like pawns for this grander chess match of just wanting to exact revenge on his father and, and saving Nunnally in the process. Um, and in that, you can kind of see like the parallel motives between like Suzaku and Lelouch where it seems like neither of them were really invested in their causes as much as they championed their ideologies. It was just a way to kind of exercise their personal demons where like Suzaku was trying to get atone for killing his father and Lelouch kind of trying to reconcile with his mother's death. And the other question that I had, and maybe this is just me trying to navigate this information overload of a show, but um, I, I couldn't quite understand what tipped off Suzaku that Lelouch was zero because he didn't 100% know it, but he says in this moment, I think it's in this moment, um, that he, he was suspicious for a while that Lelouch was zero. I Did I miss something? Like, was there something that we saw as the audience that would kind of put two and two together? Because when I think back to Yuffie and Lelouch meeting each other um, for the first time, while he's zero he says something along the lines of like oh you haven't changed and i think that was like a a big tip off to her that it's somebody obviously that she's known for a long time but i i can't quite find the moment or or the the implication that suzaku started to realize that lelouch was was zero it was v2 wasn't it like two episodes ago she appeared in the in the hospital or er room but I thought V2 only told Suzaku about Zero's ability with Gias and, and how he's gotten oh. where he's at. Did, did V2 actually reveal to Suzaku that it was Lelouch? Because he says, it's just weird then, because if Suzaku says like, oh, I've been suspicious this whole time that it was you, and here I have that confirmation, versus like, this alien child told me that you're you're Zero. But Aaron, do you know what, what tipped Suzaku off to that? I don't think there is, like, one specific moment. Um, I mean, it could just be, like, a accumulation of, you know, him missing classes and being out late and being a strategic person. Um, their discussions of earlier in the season between um, when they were talking about the Black Knights and uh, Lelouch was very much in support of them, whereas Suzaku was kind of doing his whole, you know, the means need to justify the ends kind of spiel. Uh, so I think it, it's probably just like accumulation of all of it where he just had a hunch like, yeah, Lelouch is probably more uh, invested in this than he's letting on. But I don't think there was any like one specific moment that like tipped him off. 
Okay, that makes sense. And I'm glad that like I didn't completely miss like a key part of the plot that that hinted towards, you know, Lelouch being zero. But I think that makes sense. Like it just everything that kind of has been going on around Lelouch and of course their their history and how well he knows Lelouch that that makes sense that that kind of all led him to that conclusion. One thing I had um kind of going back to the mystery of C2 uh we are introduced here again in this episode to the thought elevator which that was kind of mind-blowing because when that was first introduced in that island episode i got like immediate assassin's creed vibes um of you know like this mysterious or paranormal thing that cc's involved in that is kind of being like influencing the stuff that's going on right now um i think at some point like when CC or C2 and Lelouch enter the thought elevator, there's like this, they have a moment where there's like a mind trap, um, or I think I said brain freeze in the synopsis, and it shows scenes. And I don't know if either of you can give me like a spoiler-free explanation of this, but is it scenes from the past where like CC has kind of interfered in world events? Um, (laughs) I mean, so, uh, okay. Like, Uh. well, truthfully, like I, this is what I was saying in our last uh, podcast episode about Kogias. Like I watched this so long ago that there's actually things that I, I don't quite remember. I remember a lot of like the big plot points and like the reveals and, and stuff like that, but I'm not, I'm actually not too sure myself. I mean, that, that's the, I think kind of what they're hinting at, but I don't know, Aaron, what, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, kind of, kind of the same thing. I mean, it's been a couple of years since I've watched it too, but I think it's more like he's seeing her past and her past um, contracts or like people that she has come in contact with because she's been around forever. Um, so yeah, I think that's what that whole scene was, was him kind of seeing the burden of her past come flooding in through her memories. Okay, I think that, that makes sense. And again, that just makes me more intrigued on what her place is in this in this whole story and um, I didn't realize you know because I knew like there was a season two but I thought this would uh, this season one would have like a finite ending but obviously it ends on a cliffhanger so all of these questions lingering in my head I'm going to have to hold on to um, going into R2 but I can't imagine like for people like you or Courtney who who are probably watching or I think you mentioned you had watched this while it was airing or yeah i think i watched this um because okay aaron did, did the manga come out like in 2007 2008 am i right about those dates so this is actually a case where the anime came out first um there, the manga is an adaptation of the anime not the other way around um which is actually really interesting i think and the manga is actually very different too like the mechs aren't in the manga or anything like that it's all just like foot soldiers hmm um, so this was like the case, like when it was debuting, it was brand new. There was no source material. There was no way for people to be like, Oh, what happens next? I got to go find the manga. Cause it, it didn't exist. Yeah. And I think when I watched Code Geass, the first season, it was like right on the, like right before season two aired, which I think was like around when the manga started to, to come out. If I remember correctly, because I, I mentioned in the last podcast episode that 
I got into Kogias because my friend was reading the manga at the time and then said, you need to watch this. But I do remember going into season two and who knows, maybe my memory is really fuzzy, but I do remember going into season two kind of with everyone else as it was airing. So I didn't have to suffer the long wait between season one and season two with that crazy cliffhanger. But I, I feel sympathetic for for those of you that did have to wait, I think, that full year before you got a resolution to that. So yeah, it looks like, I just pulled it up here, it actually looks like the manga did um, first come out in August of 2006, where the anime aired in October, which is kind of interesting because um, everywhere I can find says that the um, manga was an adaptation of the anime, not the other way around, which is kind of confusing, especially because the manga apparently didn't finish until 2010, whereas the anime was done the next year in 2008. So it's like kind of weird. They kind of like had an overlap, I guess, but the anime like started it. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because a lot of um, a lot of places like Wiki and um, I think Netflix or Hulu, wherever we watched it, um, they all say it's an original anime. Um, so yeah, that that is confusing. Just you know, it, it's perfect for the whole timeline of Kogias itself to be just as confusing as the plot is. <laughs> If you look at the, the My Anime List page for Code Geass and look at all of the, like, spinoffs and side adaptations, there's, like, 20 of them. Jesus. So, I don't know, it gets really kind of conf- confusing. I've only seen the, the two seasons, and I've seen the movie that, like, continues where the two seasons leave off, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I don't know about, like, how crazy the manga gets. I just know the manga differs a little bit here and there. Um. But yeah, that's that's kind of where where I'm familiar with it was that I thought the the anime like started it. Yeah, that's that was my thought too, and it's just interesting to know that they wrote out the the mecha aspect of the show with the manga. Like, I wonder what led to that creative choice and and why they would want to do that when when the the mechs are so cool in the show, <laughs> specifically Lancelot. Like, I love anytime Lancelot's on screen. Yeah, um, maybe it's because. Mechas are probably more visual appealing, visually appealing in a television medium, but I think you could still fit Mecha into a manga and it would still look look great. Um, I think the point that I was trying to get to earlier is that again with the season ending the way that it did, I'm glad that I don't have to wait like a year or two <laughs> to to get my questions answered and can probably hop onto Netflix or Hulu again to to finish off with R2. Um, but man, I can't imagine the people who did watch this live seeing that ending and being like, what the hell happens next? Yeah, talk about <laughs> like one of the most intense cliffhangers in history, or at least in anime history, of the anime that I know of. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And that brings us to our final thoughts on a very special episode of Strictly Anime. How many... Naughty knock-on wooden table Ninas out of 10 would you both give Code Geass Season 1? And I'll have you start us off, Aaron. Okay. Um, so, as I said when we started, I absolutely love this anime. Um, I don't re-watch things very often, and this was the fourth time I have watched through this. And it's amazing to me every step of the way. And it's... Um, so an anime that is very special to me. So I, I feel a little awkward saying it, but this is kind of what I would consider a 10 out of 10 anime to me. Um, it's the show that I refer to 
literally anybody that I talk to about anime, see if they've seen or if they're looking for recommendations. It's usually amongst the first um, that I would recommend to anybody to watch, um, especially if they are people who are kind of new to the medium. Um, it's up there with like a like a Death Note or a Bebop or something like that to me where it just appeals to everybody, whether they are into anime or not. And it's just really well executed and told from beginning to end. All very solid points. Thank you. Do you want me to go, Courtney, or do you want to go for um, I'll let you go because my <laughs> thoughts are similar to Aaron, but I don't want to sway you too much. So I'm curious you, to know what you're rating it. Are you sure you don't want to end on the unpopular opinion? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I can, I can go. Um, I hope I don't get flack for this, but I would give this season one eight and a half naughty knock on wooden table Nina's out of 10. And maybe again, I think I mentioned this in another podcast episode that is, I'm probably spoiled with watching the more modern anime. So like going back to these classics, I don't have that same feel as, as you or you, Courtney, or you, Aaron, do. But I will say this, like I, I do enjoy the story. It's a very finely crafted revenge plot that deals with a very interesting theme of like morality or I guess on a more specific note, the effectiveness of law and order versus like vigilantism or radicalism in bringing about true change true change and that's probably a dark knight reference for anyone who didn't notice (laughs) um but mixing that again in with these very complex character relationships um it just all made for a very engrossing story i think the one thing that kind of falls flat for me is that the story kind of falters under the weight of it's lightning fast pacing and at times it can feel like erratic storytelling beats which can be like a positive and a negative because on one side i'm the viewer i'm the kind of viewer who doesn't like things trudging along so slowly so i think the show was great at you know keeping things moving but at points it just felt like it was moving too quickly for people to really comprehend unless they took a step back um and kind of jotted down notes like I was doing. But yeah, I think overall, I, I really enjoyed this season. And going into um, R2, one thing I wanted to point out is like the narrator in one of these episodes, I don't know if it's CC, but she, they claim that people who can use Gios for the right reasons can become a true king. Um, so that kind of stuck with me um, watching this finale and seeing that it didn't get resolved there. Going into season two, I'm looking forward to seeing if like Lelouch can live up to this expectation of becoming a true king and utilizing Gios for the right reasons or utilizing it productively. Um, I'm also eager to get more info on Cece's backstory and this concept of the thought elevator and whether or not like Britain has a motive for like harnessing the power of these ruins or maybe harnessing the power of Gios in order to like assert their true dominion over the world. Um, please don't spoil that for me. <laughs> um, and the last thing is, you know, if Nina continues being a pain in the ass and in the table, <laughs> then so Gias help me, I'd like to ask her a favor for her to fuck off and die. <laughs> Man, okay, so with my rating, um, re-watching it a second time, like over a decade after the first time I watched it, um, 
the whole way through, I was like 9.5 out of 10. Like 9.5 out of 10, it's not without its flaws. But after watching like the last three to five episodes, I'm like, man, 10 out of 10. Like, I feel like the the intensity behind the the very last part of, of this season, um, the way it just like is so gripping the entire time um, and just leaves you wondering like, what is what's going on here in the bigger picture like what's going on with c2 what's going to happen after this cliffhanger just just wanting more just makes it a 10 out of 10 for me like i i can easily forgive some of those flaws that this show has just because of the way that um the the story well it doesn't wrap up it just you know the way it wraps up for this season um and again like i i'm glad i also didn't have to wait that whole year before getting to watch season two because i can only imagine the torment that everyone felt just having to to sit there twiddling their thumbs wondering what's going to happen um and I'm also just excited in general to to rewatch the second season because as I mentioned before there's a lot that I don't quite remember uh, I think I probably remember season one more than I remember season two so I'm excited to on a certain level relive the experience of watching season two for the first time um, but I'm also kind of excited but also apprehensive to to see some of the things that i know are, are going to happen in this show oh boy <laughs> oh boy get ready <laughs> <laughs> so before we wrap things up aaron tell us where we can find more info on your youtube channel under the bond and where we can find you on social media uh yeah so we are um under the bun like we have said um we're on youtube um just channel name under the bun um pretty easy to find uh, we are also on Facebook, just also called Under the Bun. We use Facebook mainly as just a uh, tool to update um, our viewers on what videos we have putting out. And then you can follow me uh, directly on Twitter at uh, UTB underscore Nidstang. Um, that's what I go as on Under the Bun. And um, I'm fairly active on there, just kind of talking about pop culture and video games in general um, on there. Awesome. And for anybody who likes to explore our show notes, we'll also leave links to um, Aaron and Under the Buns um, social media, YouTube page, all of that in those show notes. So be sure to explore that. But thank you so much, Aaron, yeah, for joining you. us on this this Code Geass review. This has been awesome. Um, we're very much looking forward to having you back on the podcast when we talk about season two of Code Geass. So um, to all of our listeners, please look forward to that. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun, and I'd love to come back. And that wraps up episode 28 of Strictly Anime with our very first and very special guest and good friend, Aaron from Under the Bun on YouTube. If you enjoy our show, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you can be notified when new episodes premiere every other Monday. Follow us on Instagram at The Strictly Series and on Twitter at Strictly Series and connect with us there or on our website, thestrictlyseries.com, to share your thoughts on the anime we review. You'll also find more info on Strictly Jojo, our other podcast dedicated to Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, stay safe, stay healthy, stay weeb. Woo! Yeah. That was great. <laughs> <laughs>